The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. For some years, all majors could get away with saying, yeah, we will be net zero by 2050. And that's what Paris is asking. And now more and more people are saying, I don't care where you are in 2050, uh, you need to deliver in the next 10 years, you need to deliver real emission reductions, not uh, averages, not intensities, no, absolute emissions have to go down strongly, 45%. Um, and that's what Paris means. If uh, if you don't achieve that, if the world doesn't achieve that in the next 10 years, then it's useless to talk about net zero by 2050. The hearing. I'm going to ask today's guest to introduce himself. Hello, Mark. Hello, Becky. Yes, I'm Mark van Baal. Um, Founded Follow This in 2015, based on the conviction that we need big oil to achieve the Paris Climate Agreement. We need big oil to change rapidly to um, decarbonize the global economy. They have the, the money, the power, the worldwide reach to speed up the energy transition. And Follow This is also based on the conviction that they won't do it on their own accord. They're too addicted to do their old business model. So the only ones who can make them change are their shareholders, the big institutional investors who have a big stake in winning the fight against climate change. So therefore, I started Follow This. And what we basically do is filing shareholder resolutions which ask big oil to commit to the Paris Climate Agreement by drastically cutting their emissions. I really wanted to start off this conversation by talking to you about May 2021 um, and particularly that last week in May 2021, which just seemed to be the most incredible crunch point for the fossil fuel industry. An awful lot seemed to get crammed into that one week. Can you just tell us a bit about the major highlights? Yeah, May 2021 sure was a watershed month in the fight against climate change. Uh, A lot of things happened. Um, At the AGMs of uh, six oil majors where we filed our shareholder resolutions, um, institutional investors started voting for our resolutions massively. In Europe, the votes doubled. In the US, we got majorities at Chevron, Philips 66, uh, and ConocoPhillips, uh, where our resolution appeared on the ballot for for the first time. So a majority of shareholders said to these three companies, you have to commit to the Paris Climate Agreement, you have to decrease your emissions. Then in the last week, um, there was an activist shareholder in the uh, the US uh, called uh, Engine Number One, who got three board seats in the biggest oil major uh, in the world, uh, ExxonMobil. Shell, the biggest oil company, or basically the second biggest in the world. They always compete with Exxon, who's the biggest. Um, uh, lost the court case. A Dutch judge told Shell that they had to reduce their emissions by 45% by 2030, so almost halving in the next uh, 10 years. Um, then there was a court case, one in Australia. And in the same month, the International Energy Agency, in, uh, based in Paris, uh, basically kind of a, uh, an organization for the oil industry, told the oil industry, if you want to meet the 1.5 degrees pathway set out by the Paris Climate Agreement, 
every dollar in invested in more oil and gas is wasted. You already have enough um, uh, oil and gas on your balance sheets. So please stop investing in more fossil fuels. So that was. Re Let's hope this month will go down in history as the the month that we started to win the the war against the climate crisis. Well, what I think that you do that is so interesting is is particularly that point about shareholder activism and getting things on the um, the ballot for shareholder resolutions. And why I find that so interesting is that sort of, I think that 10 or 20 years ago, the idea of shareholder activism used to be that somebody has bought a share for a pound, giving them the right to turn up to your shareholder meeting and um, bang a drum, cause a bit of a protest. And now shareholder activism means something incredibly different and much more powerful in some ways, much more nuanced. Can you talk us through what that new shareholder activism looks like and the sort of things that follow this are doing. Yeah, and I can also tell you my experience with let's what you call the old kind of shareholder activism. <laughs> uh, Please I, do. I went, to, I went to the shareholder meeting of um, biggest oil company in the Netherlands um, in uh, May 2015 for the first time on behalf of a few hundred shareholders and asked them when they would start investing in renewables and I was treated like every ordinary activist. Thank you for coming here. Thank you for your support. Uh, we're not investing in renewables. See you next year. And then we will tell you and then we invite you to come back every year and then we will tell you when the time is right. That was 2015. 2016, um, we got a shareholder resolution on the agenda of uh, the biggest oil company in the Netherlands, uh, the second in the world. Um, and then it got serious because then the investors had to show their true colors. So for the, the thing about normal um, engagement with all majors is that everybody has their say. And at the end of the day, the board takes the decision. Uh, and they say, we've taken everything into account and there's no transparency. By putting a shareholder resolution on the agenda of an AGM of an oil major, you basically force the oil major to publicly uh, take a statement on your resolution and also the investors. So what happened in the Netherlands 2016 for the first time, we simply started asking, uh, there's a, please commit yourself to the Paris Climate Agreement um, and it, uh, by setting targets for all emissions um, to achieve the Paris Climate Agreement. And that basically means that uh, you have to decrease your emissions. And at the end of the day, that means that you have to shift your investments from fossil fuels to renewables. We don't ask that directly because investors don't like to be prescriptive. They mm. don't like to sit in the driver's seat. They say that's up to the board to take that kind of decisions. So we went to the shareholder meeting with a kind of Trojan horse, a glass Trojan horse, which just asked for commitment to the Paris Climate Agreement. But everybody knew that that would mean a shift in investment. So the board advised shareholders to vote against it. Uh, so that was the first time there was a public record on an oil major uh, and Paris, uh, the Paris Climate Agreement. Um, and keep that in mind because that mm. played an important role in the court case, uh, which started later. Um, and also the investors had to show their true colors. They're all talking about green pensions, making sure that all their 
members retire in a decent world where climate change is stopped and where there's enough money. And they now also had to take a decision. Turned out that it was very difficult for them to make that decision. In, in 2016, we just got 2.7% of the votes. Um, so 89.3% uh, still voted uh, with the board. Uh, but it was already a good signal because at all other resolutions, 99.5 or uh, more votes with management. Normally, these outcomes are mm. North Korean, as I always call them. Um, so 2.7% for an outsider shareholder resolution was already a signal, but apparently not enough. Next year, we came back, then we got 6%, and then the company responded um, with a target to reduce all emissions. Um, they promised to halve all emissions by 2050. And from then on, they called our resolution unnecessary. So I've got a few questions spilling out from there. Um, and the first one is, what is the process for how you can get a resolution into that position? And how do you go about securing support for it? Yeah, in um, res filing a resolution in the UK, every country has a different legislation uh, right. about that. Right. In the Netherlands, for example, you need 3% of the shares to get something on the ballot. In France, it's 0.5%. In Italy, it's 3%. Uh, but in the UK, uh, you either need 5% or, you, that's too far too much for, uh, uh, for an NGO, um, but you can also file a resolution when you have 100 different shareholders holding, and now I have to get legalistic, <laughs> uh, an average paid-up capital of £100. Right. 100 shareholders with an average paid-up capital of £100. Sounds very small. Uh, just sounds like a few shares, but keep in mind that the nominal value of uh, these shares are very low. Um, so in the case of Shell, where we started, a nominal value of uh, £100 means 2,000 shares uh, representing like €50,000. So you need 100 shareholders with an average holding of 50,000 euro in that particular company. That's the UK law. Uh, and luckily, uh, BP is a British company and Shell is also a half British, half Dutch company. So we could use that uh, uh, British law. Um, and what we did in 2016, uh, luckily I realized that an average paid up capital also means that you can have people with very small holdings and people with very big holdings. So uh, ever, 100 times an average of 50,000 means 100 people with 5 million. So in the first year, we just had five people with 1 million and another 100 people with um, uh, just one share. Right. And then you can file a shareholder resolution with, uh, with this over 100 people with, uh, uh, with 5 million euros in, in shares. And that's the UK law. Um, therefore, we started in uh, in the UK. And is it different again for the US? In the US, uh, there's a different legislation. Simply stated, the threshold is much lower, but there's another barrier, and that's the, the watchdog, the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission. Um, so in the UK, when you pass a threshold, you can put whatever you like on the agenda. 
in the US, you, the threshold is relatively low, $2,000. The only uh, thing is that you have to own them already for a year. So you can't, you really have to uh, be a, at least a long, longer time shareholder. Um, but um, then the company, if you, if you are eligible, the paperwork is right, then the company can still go to the SEC and file a so-called no action letter. And in a no action letter, they can use uh, like 10 different rules to convince the SEC that this is something the shareholders should not have a say in, should not vote, uh, vote about. And that's, uh, that's what these companies routinely try. And normally they, they use uh, three, uh, three rules. That's, it's too, the resolution is too fake. It's already implemented and it's micromanagerial. And in the Trump years, they uh, succeeded in that. So in the Trump years, we were not able to put anything on the agenda. And last year, uh, that was quite a, uh, also a watershed moment that the SEC allowed our resolution. So they, they told these companies, okay, uh, asking for uh, global emission reductions in line with the Paris climate is not micromanagerial. Of course it's not, uh, but we were really surprised that uh, Joe Biden had changed the SEC so fast. He, you, imagine when you file your resolutions before the end of the year, then the no action letters come in in January and the SEC takes a decision in February or March. Joe Biden was inaugurated on the 20th of January, but apparently he immediately put uh, the right people in the leadership of the SEC. So they uh, took different decisions and they took the only logical decision, which is um, asking for company-wide, worldwide emission reductions is not micromanagerial. It's not fake and it's not already implemented. Uh, so for the first time, these resolutions were on the ballot in, uh, in the US. Um, and yeah, and they immediately got majorities. That was, that was really uh, also a watershed moment. So that is the next thing that I want to talk about. I think it's really interesting, um, the nuts and bolts of how you get a shareholder resolution into a position where people can vote on it. And it's very interesting to me that it is so different and you have to have a very different um, strategy depending on the country that you're going for. And and obviously in the US, how interestingly political that became. Um, but the next thing that I wanted to talk about is once you've got it on there, how do you get big big banks and investors, you know, the kind of the, the, the sort of the pillars of the investment community, how do you get them to support you? Yeah, the most important thing you have to do is to create clarity in all the smoke screens the mm. companies are putting up um, and convincing investors that is just a fair ask. You have to take in mind and that's yeah, let me go back to, to what the conviction of follow this is. The conviction of follow this is that we need big oil to rapidly change to accelerate the energy transition in the right direction, which is in the direction of renewables. That without the industry, we're doomed. If we leave the industry to do what they've done for the last 100 years, we will never reach the Paris Climate Agreement. So we need them. And I'm also convinced that they won't change on their own accord. They like their current business model far too much. Um, so 
the only way they're going to change is when their shareholders are um, supporting them in it, compelling them, and if needed, forcing them to uh, to change uh, to change course. Um, and that can only be done by making it very transparent. And that's what we do with shareholder resolution. So we put it on the agenda, and then their investors have to be brave enough to vote against these powerful companies. And that that has turned out to be the most difficult part of our uh, <laughs> of our journey. If I had known that in advance, I, I, I'm, I'm not sure if I would have started it. Uh, so you remember the 2.7%? I do. Apparently, it's very difficult as a big investor. Part of the, you're part of the establishment. And on the top of the pyramid of the establishment is the biggest oil company in, the, in your country, which most of the time is also the biggest, uh, the biggest company in your country. So... In the U.S., it's very difficult to vote against the board of Chevron BP or Philips 66 in the, in the Netherlands. It's very difficult to vote against Shell, uh, and in BP, and in the U.K., it's very difficult to vote vote against uh, BP. So that's that was the biggest struggle because the, we got a lot of feedback from investors who said, "Yeah, but they're already supporting the Paris Climate Agreement, so your resolution is unnecessary." So we have to you have to convince them that you have just a fair ask on the agenda. And so um, thinking about your success in the US in 2020, in May 2021, where I know that um, BlackRock backed your resolution. Yeah. How did that come about? How did you get a company like BlackRock to um, vote against the direction of the board? Yeah, I think this was a vote they couldn't refuse. Right. In Europe, at least these companies are pretending that they are Paris consistent. In the US, uh, these companies are still in the same position as the European oil majors, where when we started our campaign, they say the emissions of our products, that's not our responsibility. That's up to consumers. Some some even say we don't know what, we don't know what our customers do with our products. I always say I think they burn it, but uh, and then <laughs> you need to provide them something else. I think in the U.S. it was clear that that we had filed resolutions at three oil majors, uh, which had no emission reduction targets in place for their products, which is scope three in the jargon of this industry or in the jargon of investors. So no scope three target. So there was no way they could vote against our fair ask. Um, and it also proved that there basically are two kinds of investors. The investors who really insist on science-based emission reduction targets and the ones who settle for company-issued uh, uh, intensity targets fake promises for 2050 and then they say um, um, yeah the company has pro uh, has uh, promised enough now they're front runners look at the US where nobody is having any target so we're gonna support them and vote against this kind of resolution so it's I think it's even more important that uh, we got one-third almost one-third of the votes in Europe mm. where all these companies are talking about net zero by 2050 while continuing business as usual in the next 10 years, uh, that's even more important than the majorities in the US because we have to see next year uh, when these companies, uh, after they've set some scope three targets, 
if companies like BlackRock are still going to vote for them. I think what I find so compelling about your uh, about what you do is that it, it's is is in its simplicity. So many companies now are setting targets and are. Um, agreeing to emissions. And I think it's very hard to demonstrate action in some ways because what action people should take is not always obvious. And what I love about your um, organisation and what it is that you do is you give people a very clear way of taking action by saying, we have got a resolution on this slate that you can vote yes or no on. And that yes or no vote is a very clear action that you can take in accordance with your principles. Um, And then, of course, you can point to the principles of investors and say, well, you say that you are committed to Paris. We have a shareholder resolution here that you can vote on to um, make your views as a shareholder have real impact on whether or not somebody is going to be delivering Paris, show us what you're made of, I suppose. is what, and, and it's so simple. And yet it brings this kind of deep clarity to what is going on and kind of sifts, I suppose, that um, the people who are really here to play ball and the people who are greenwashing. And that's what I love about it. Um, and I wanted to kind of say, where are we going next? Has there been a shift in culture? Um, have there been kind of uh, big changes since May 2021 that you are seeing in what you're doing? Yeah, some more things happened. Eh? We had the Glasgow meeting of uh, of countries. Uh, COP26. Yeah, COP26. In Glasgow, uh, same conclusion as the judge uh, and as uh, one-third of the investors in Europe uh, draw. Emissions have to go down by 45% by 2030. And that's a very strong message to the world. We completely need to overhaul our energy system in the next 10 years and not in 2050. And that's, I think, the, uh, the most important what happened last year. For some years all majors could get away with saying, yeah, we will be net zero by 2050. So, And that's what Paris is asking. And now more and more people are saying, uh, I don't care where you are in 2050, uh, you need to deliver in the next 10 years. You need to deliver real emission reductions, not uh, averages, not intensities. No, absolute emissions have to go down strongly, 45%. Um, and that's what Paris means. If uh, if you don't achieve that, if the world doesn't achieve that in the next 10 years, then it's useless to talk about net zero by uh, by 2050. And that's, I think, an important message that more and more investors fully understand. It took it took some time to uh, for investors to uh, decide that they knew more about climate change than the CEOs of these oil majors. And I think they're at that point now. And um, and therefore, we get this, this massive support. We started at 2.7%. Uh, yeah. For the same, almost the same question. And, um, and it's very extraordinary that investors vote against uh, management. And now, because they realize that basically their entire portfolio is at stake because of the devastating consequences of climate change. They say we need to achieve the Paris Climate Agreement, preferably 1.5 degrees. 
Um, nobody's talking about two degrees anymore these days. It's always 1.5, which means halving emissions by 2030, mm -hmm. zero in 2050. Um, and now they realize that they, uh, yeah, they are more outspoken towards the companies who can make or break the Paris Climate Agreement. The, yeah, we have to face that the fossil fuel industry is responsible responsible for more than half of the emissions, if you include coal. Um, more than half of the emissions. So they have to change. If they don't change, no chance we can meet the Paris Climate Agreement. So I think that leads me on to another question, because I, I absolutely accept the premise um, that radical change is needed and as soon as possible so that we're not baking in um, rises in temperature um, by 2050. Obviously, as we know, there's no point in carrying on business as usual until 2049 and then radically trying to cut everything yeah. in a year because the changes in the climate will be baked in. So earlier, the better. Do you think a lot of these investors are also doing it because they are worried about being invested in stranded assets um, and and how much of an impact that's having on their decision making as well and and if uh, I suppose as well could you explain to our listeners for those who are not familiar with the phrase stranded assets what those are and why they are important yeah let's first try to explain stranded assets <laughs> in a few lines basically uh, when the world is to achieve the Paris climate agreement uh, we can emit only another 400 gigatons of CO2 in total. And when you look at the balance sheets of the fossil fuel industry, what they have on the balance sheet as proven reserves that they still want to get out of the ground and sell, the number is not 400, it's 3,000. That's approximately a little under 3,000 now, I think. That's if you include coal. If you exclude coal, then it's still 1,200. So the oil and gas companies on their balance sheet is three times as much CO2 embedded than we are allowed to emit as a world in the Paris Climate Agreement, 400. So if we were to meet the Paris Climate Agreement, two-thirds of all oil uh, gas reserves need to stay in the ground. Uh, that's, that's, of course, a very frightening future for oil and gas companies, for their investors. So that, that's, they have that in mind, but I think that it's more important for them that the Paris Climate Agreement is achieved to safeguard their other investments. Uh, interesting. Can you tell us more about that? Because that's an easier debate with an oil and gas major. If you talk with an oil and gas major, so imagine you're an investor. You sit with the CEO of, if you're a big investor, you're allowed to, to have a coffee with the CEO once a year, <laughs> twice a year. And then you're the investor and you're going to tell the CEO of the oil major, yeah, part of your assets will be stranded. The CEO will say, of course, a lot of assets will be stranded, but not my assets because I have the best assets. I have the best <laughs> barrels. My barrels are the cheapest. Uh, are the most responsible, so you better allow me to get all these barrel barrels out of the ground and avoid others to do uh, so, uh, because if you uh, force me to leave barrels in the ground, others will produce it less responsible at higher cost. 
Now, imagine now you're the investor. That's very difficult to counter that because basically you're going to say as an investor, okay, you CEO uh, with your 40 years experience, 30 years, um, I know better uh, how to run your business than you do. That's a very difficult debate because he sends you home saying, okay, uh, you're an investor. Tomorrow you're with a food company and the day after you're with a real estate company. So you have to know about uh, all different kinds of businesses. So uh, I forgive you not to fully understand my business, but trust me. Um, uh, yes. And that's a debate which, which is very difficult. But... These days, the investors sit there. Yes, of course, I know more about agriculture, about uh, about real estate, and all these assets are at risk because of climate change. And you're the one who has to change your business to make sure my entire portfolio um, doesn't lose money. Um, and that's a different discussion. Uh, and then they can go uh, to the science and say the science says. Halving, your, halving emissions by 2030, zero by 2050. That's what you have to do. And I think that's that's the really change in the debate I've seen in the last uh, seven years. Um, that the investor are the investors are more self confident and and, and uh, say, okay, we know more about climate change than you do. You also see a lot of complaints now about the climate competency in the boards. Um, yes, it's not uh, it's not there yet. So that's so. I think the 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 whole idea that uh, climate change is a threat to all assets of a big investor. That's a more important argument than the stranded uh, assets. That's really interesting and, and very heartening as well. That those big investors have got that now level of climate competence in their own organisations to give them the confidence to have those conversations. Yeah. So I suppose that, that my, my last question really is what is next for Follow This? Where are we going um, to take it afterwards? Yeah, that's the most difficult question um, because, yeah, we have now majorities in the US that led to some vague promises um, for Scope 3 emission reduction targets. Uh, the most telling is one big oil major said, yes, okay, we saw that there is a majority. So now we're going we're gonna to set a target for scope three. And the target is we're going to reduce our carbon intensity by 5% in 2028. So that's, that's uh, just, an, uh, you can do that with low hanging fruit, moving a little bit from oil to gas. That's nothing. But they will go to their, to their shareholders now saying, yeah, now we have this target for scope three. Now you have to vote against this resolution. So let's see how strong the investors are and insist on science-based targets, which needs, which says 45% by 2030 in absolute terms, not in mm. relative or intensity terms. Um, in Europe, uh, we got one third at one of the biggest oil companies in Europe, uh, 21% and another. So that's a very strong sign to the boards that the current strategies uh, are not good enough. The responses of these companies are still, uh, yes, we still have the support of our investors to execute our current strategy. So yeah, this year investors have to be even, more investors have to realize that the only way to change these oil majors is to vote 
for climate resolutions because that's the only way they can make crystal clear what they want. Engagement is good, but engagement is, is, is prone to different interpretations. Um, so the big, two biggest oil companies in the UK are still saying, yes, we have this new strategy. We're going to be net zero by 2050. Next 10 years, we need to grow our business to be able to do so. Uh, so the next 10 years, we're going to increase emissions. And we have the support of our shareholders, and that's what we learn from engagement. So the only way to make crystal clear that they need to sharpen their targets for 2030 is by voting for climate resolution. So yeah, what's next? Uh, apparently, these companies even need a stronger signal that their investors are losing their patience. So we need to grow the votes. Um, and... Um, we expect to do so, but we really hope to get to also to majorities in, in Europe. Um, so the old majors cannot say anymore, we have the support of our shareholders to continue business as usual. So, as you know, this is a legal podcast for lawyers. Um, and I know that many lawyers working in the corporate space would be absolutely fascinated in um in the process that you go through and the way you're using that process to um, bring a lot of clarity um, to the discussion and the debate. But do you have any advice for lawyers who want to help their clients and companies generally decarbonize faster, but in a way that is responsible, effective and um, and is a just transition. Um, what would you what what do you think that lawyers could be doing to support that? Yeah, I think the court case in the Netherlands has shown that the boards of these companies are responsible so and that they will be held accountable and also uh, liable in the next years if they don't take the right decision. That, that's that's an, a very important uh, message of uh, the ruling in the Netherlands. So basically, a Dutch judge told biggest oil company in the Netherlands, Shell, and basically all oil majors in the world, you have to halve your emissions in the next decade. And if uh, if not, uh, you're accountable and liable. So I think every lawyer inside these corporations and outside these companies should realize that it's no use to talk about 2050 anymore because in the next couple of years, there will be more court cases. And it's, uh, it's obvious that uh, you are, if you don't, help in achieving the Paris Climate Agreement, you're uh, accountable and liable. So that's the that's an important outcome of, uh, of the court case. My understanding of that Shell case in the Netherlands is not that it was decided on the basis of a quirk of Dutch law, which was specific to the Netherlands. It's that it was a, a principle which could easily be replicated in other jurisdictions like the UK. So that it's um, just so that lawyers listening to this understand that it, it is not going to be um, something that you can think, oh, well, that was something that happened in the Netherlands and it can't happen here, that the underlying principles could easily be replicated in other jurisdictions. Yeah, absolutely. They use uh, human rights law, which yeah. is applicable in every decent uh, country. So this case can be easily replicated. So I think, yeah, it's, it's a matter of time that more of these cases uh, will be uh, will be filed the only disadvantage is that it takes years and years, and we only have a few years to uh, to make the right decisions. That's that's uh, sometimes it's frightening me that that 
we know that we have to halve emissions in the next 10 years. And this means that we have to take as a world very bold and brave decisions in the next one, two, three years. Otherwise, we're too late. The Hearing. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, then please do like and subscribe. And we would love to hear any feedback or episode ideas that you have. The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash the hearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.